0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show
1: description to support now. This is episode two of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy. Find out more on our website at docio.edconroy.co.uk.
0: Hello Hello there. Good morning to you. It's it's evening for me. Well, hello there. My name is Ed Conroy. I am the host for the Docio podcast. And in this, the second of two episodes, I continue my conversation with Professor Andrew Fiala on the subject of peace and pacifism. If you haven't heard the first episode, then please do go back and listen to that. And for those of you that have already listened to part one, here is part two of my conversation with Professor Andrew Fiala. This is a huge question, or this is a huge subject, and I don't think we've got time to dig too much into it, but I think it's quite interesting uh, to dig in a little bit. I want to talk about nation states. So in Against Religion, Wars and State you write the history of contemporary states shows us that most states were created by the arbitrary line drawing and military conquest. So the modern nation state it could be argued are just a random imaginary line drawn on a map that tells people on the outside of those lines that you know in the Gandalf way uh, thou shalt not pass uh, and that nation-states are actually a fiction. They're just used for a political expediency. Is that what you're getting at? Or, and is that what you were thinking when you were writing that? Or could you, could you just elaborate what your thinking was and why that's wrong or right? Yeah.
2: No, thank you. So thanks, thanks for noticing that. So, um, the, you know, we're talking about pacifism but there's a connection between pacifism and anarchism and a connection also with cosmopolitanism. So there's all these isms, right? One connection between the pacifists and the anarchists has to do with the mythological status of nation states. Pacifists generally, again, let me back up one second. It's crazy to say this stuff. We live in a world with nation states. We have armies and police, right? So the, the world is constructed by these lines, right? The lines have weird histories. People are grouped together for strange reasons that are not based in anything metaphysical, on my opinion. So the pacifists and anarchists have pointed out that generally, Military power has been used to enforce these mythological constructs. And it's often at the expense of of good people, those innocent children we're talking about. And it happens in in at least two ways. It happens both within the nation state and to those outside the nation state, right? So if you want to think about the external, maybe a little bit easy, but, you know, we build our, our wall as our our former President Donald Trump did along the southern border. We build up our wall, and you can't come over, Gandalf. Thou shalt not pass, right? And if you climb over, we're going to shoot you or put you in prison, or we're going to use violence to enforce the wall. Now, the southern border of the United States, very interesting. How how did that border get drawn? Well, it was the result of a war. Spanish-American, Mexican-American, I mean, uh, Mexican-American before the Spanish-American but you know the United States is a result of some land grabs and by, and that's actually Mexico versus the United States later Spain versus the United States which is how you know the, we got Cuba <laughs> for example and so but before that there were native peoples living on those lands who were driven out rounded up the word genocide can be used, I believe, in that context. The borders were drawn across pre existing nations, and those nations themselves were fighting amongst each other. There was a history of Americans before Anglo Europeans got here. Um, it sounds crazy to say this again, right? Because the United States exists as an entity and it has a military, and if you say this too loudly, they're going to throw you in the loony bin or lock you up in jail, right? So <laughs> nonetheless, um, the, the borders have been drawn by power, by military power. On the inside, so that, you know, there's external enemies trying to get in. On the inside, there's a kind of enforced conformity of ideology. Um, I don't know if you have this in, in Britain as much, but we, you know, our children say the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag every day in school. And our children are taught a narrow and limited view of American history that leaves out a lot in terms of land grabs and Native American genocide and so on. I'm starting to sound like a crazy left winger, (laughs) but all you need to do is take one or two steps back from the world that we have been given, the mythological world that we've been given. You take a couple steps back and you see that there's all kinds of assumptions about power, about who's who, who belongs, who doesn't belong, who should be included, who should be excluded, and so on. This is the, the pacifists. I mean, I'm, when I'm saying pacifists, there's a bunch of, there's a tradition. People have been talking about this for thousands of years. I would take it at least back to Jesus. And if, let's go back there for one second to Jesus. He lived in a conquered land right? Jesus, Jesus was a Jew who lived under Roman rule. The Romans came in and called that area Judea. I think that was the name, the Roman name for the colony. I may be wrong about that. They drew a line on the map and then they instituted their figurehead, you know, psychophantic ruler and they executed Jesus and his followers. Um, eventually they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem 70 years after the death of Jesus. And so, I mean, it's brutal power, right? Um, And that's about internal enemies, because Jesus, I believe, was viewed as an internal enemy. That's why they crucified him. Um, And Jesus offers a question, I think. Is violence really the right answer? Are these political entities really worth fighting and dying for? Right? And I think he says, no, there's a different kingdom. (laughs) Right? And by the way, I'm not a Christian. I'm just saying this as someone who studies the history of this. There's a there's a different kingdom, the kingdom, the real kingdom is not of this world. The, this, the real kingdom is not these borders. It's something else. It's the kingdom of humanity, I guess, is how I put it
0: as a humanist. It's amazing. You've already you've brought up something that is actually the last question I had in this section. Um, so I'm going to ask that now. Uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll move on with the others.
1: You're listening to episode two of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter, At Docio Podcast.
0: So I'm not American. Um, I'm an outsider, and I have to ask. uh, You brought it up, but the Pledge of Allegiance and the fact that that's required in schools. Is this because of a culture that began with a civic militia and rallied against a totalitarian government? Or is it a form of militarised brainwashing on the American young? How does it square towards a pacifistic ideology? And what is the penalty for not saying the pledge in schools? Are there conscientious objectors to it?
2: That's a good question. You know, um, I think it is puzzling for non-Americans to, to hear about this. Um Especially if you're coming from some place like Germany, which has kind of a dark history in terms of ideology and conformity. Um, well, the good news is <laughs> to the last part of your question, the good news is that students are allowed to opt out of the Pledge of Allegiance. So the one by the way, I'm an American. I'm happy to live in the United States. There's a lot about the United States that I like and value. So um, one thing I really value. I think is hugely important is the First Amendment to our Constitution, which permits freedom of religion, freedom of speech, etc., freedom of the press. Um, there's a lot of case law, and it's very technical and detailed. But students are allowed to opt out of saying the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, they don't, <laughs> generally, because they're children, right? Just that's how it works.
0: You you go along, right? Is there is there a social? There's a social pressure there, then. Yes. And has there been a history of those who did decide to opt out being perhaps picked on, looked down upon by others?
2: Yes, of course. Yes. Yes, that's, that's clearly the case. Um, you know, the, some of the case law is interesting. There's a phrase in the Pledge of Allegiance, under God, one nation under God, which rings some serious bells for non-mainstream religious people. So some of the, the law involving free speech and freedom of religion in the schools comes from non-mainstream re, uh, religious folks who are worried that their children are being indoctrinated into what they would view as idolatry, right? That this claim that America is a nation under God, which sort of turns it into God's chosen nation. That starts to sound idolatrous, right? Um, yeah, so it's. I think it is a problem. Now back to um, where does this come? I think you'd you asked sort of the history of the or why do why do we do that in the United States? Is that was that your question?
0: Yeah, I asked if this was because of a culture that began with a civic militia and rallied against the totalitarian government. Yeah, so yeah. Like- yeah,
2: you know, my, I I don't know the the deep history of of this. My again, I'd need to go check the facts on this, but um, my understanding is that this idea of the pledge developed, especially during the Cold War, as sort of us versus them. And the, I, I, knew, I know for a fact that that phrase under God was inserted in the, during the Cold War as a deliberate retort to Soviet atheism, right? So official Soviet atheism, the United States, we viewed ourselves as, differently, as different at that time. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't think. It, I don't think the pledge goes all the way far. All the way back to the origin of of the United States. I think this was an introduction, and my guess is it was introduced as part of the growth of public schools.
0: Right. right? Yeah. So, is it uh, is it is it yeah. therefore a growth out of McCarthyism? McCarthyism?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 in that era. It's connected in that right. way. And it came back in earnest. You know, after 9-11, there was a very strong patriotic sense in the United States. Um, A number of things changed that I noticed as a result. Uh, This this won't mean anything to you and a uh, a non-American audience, but during baseball games, we started singing uh, um, God Bless America or America the Beautiful. And that wasn't done before. That was introduced into baseball games. In the middle of the game, they take a break and and do this kind of patriotic thing. Um, And and it makes sense. Like, you get it, right? If your country's under attack, you want to rally the troops, and and patriotism makes sense. But my worry has always been that um, uncritical patriotism tends to fuel militarism, right? Where it's sort of support the troops no matter what they do. Yes. And that, that worries me.
0: Yes. I, I think there's that, that big um, dilemma. Um, there are lots of stories of both in the UK and the US of the troops getting up to mischief. Uh, let's put it that way. And then on the reverse, there's also a lot of abuse of troops um, by members of the public and... Um, and to be honest, someone who, who would identify as a pacifist, uh, that's myself. Um, I'm, I obviously don't agree with that. I also don't agree with bullying people because of their profession. So it's, it's a very complicated subject.
2: And let, me, let me just add to, to this, because this is very important. Um, pacifism, nonviolence, peace activism, all of this stuff, it's not about the soldier. It's about the policy, right? It's at the it's at the political level. The people who fight our wars are typically eighteen to thirty year olds who believe that what they're doing is the right thing. They also want to make a living. Um, bless their hearts is what you know. What I say, like I, I under I get it. I understand it. Like. You know, in fact, when I was in uh, in college, when I first started out as an 18-year-old, I was in the reserve officer training corps. I, I signed up. I was like, okay, I want to do this. I, I changed my opinions about this. But 18, 25-year-olds, they don't know. They're just doing their duty, right? And so I kind of, I, I respect that. And I understand the commitment and the the sense of honor and and all of that, I think there's, there's something very um, admirable in all of that. The peace argument is not about them. It's about the, the politicians who choose to use this tool in ways that are unjust and dishonorable. And what they're doing when they do that is they're using these decent young men and women uh, in a way that, that damages them permanently, right? Because when soldiers commit atrocities, it leaves a scar. It it scars the heart, right? And, and those soldiers deal with it. I see, we have students who've come back, who are veterans, who've come back from American wars in the last 20 years. And I've had some terribly disturbing conversations with those young men, typically. It's hard, right? They've been asked to do things. And then they, then they learn a little bit of history and they see a bigger picture and they're like, oh my God. Um, I don't know, it's difficult.
0: I, I guess that that brings us round. I mean, this is obviously this is all uh, extra uh, questioning here, um, but that brings us back round to um, that question that we had. Uh, I, I asked earlier about children being a casualty of war. Um, now I'm 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 just a little bit above thirty, but not too much. Um, but obviously, eighteen to thirty year olds, um, you know, you ask their mums. They probably wouldn't call them adults yet. Um, um but this 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 you know whilst you're in any whilst you're that age, um you're doing what you think is right and nothing against the soldiers on this. Um they in a sense, without even dying for their country, become a both a, a, a victim and a casualty of their own country's war machine. Um and, and, and I guess that 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 concept of that without calling them still children, and I don't want to call them children, you know, because they're not. But but you know what I mean. That there's still an innocence there that is stolen by people at the upper echelons of society. Um which I think is you know, that there was an old I I do not remember where I've read it or whether I've seen it. That, um, another point to bring in that, um, and I haven't actually got a question on this because it's a big subject and I didn't want to dive into it. But, um, warfare is often decided by the elite but fought by the working classes, by those who, you know, are sold a lie. Um, and I, I'm and i'm not saying that the military sells soldiers a lie i'm not wanting to go too far into that argument but you know there, there is there is a lot of philosophical psychological stuff going on uh, and it's very difficult um to really <laughs> say too much without starting to sound you know a little bit ooh um <laughs>
1: You're listening to episode two of the Docio Podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docky
0: But I, I, guess, I guess it does lead us on to my next question that I have written down, um, which is when discussing nation states and our reaction to them, it seems prudent for us to discuss, to discuss patriotism and nationalism, Um, Now, um, obviously, I have a background in Christian theology. So a lot of my reading has been of the Christian tradition around patriotism, nationalism, uh, pacifism, um, anti-war stuff from a Christian perspective. So um, I am going to be quoting a few people from those traditions. Um, Some of them you may have heard of. Um, In fact, one of them I definitely probably would expect because your research is very wide Uh, the first one probably not so this is um uh, so a church of england minister of the evangelical persuasion in 1983 um a reverend david Pryor wrote a book called jesus or britannia the christian dilemma over patriotism now he referenced uh, a late conservative politician british conservative politician guy called frederick catherwood who wrote a book called a better way in 1975 This is uh, the quote. I haven't actually been able to get hold of A Better Way by Frederick Catherwood, so I do apologise. I am quoting from David Pryor, which is why I've given that preamble. So Catherwood maintains that Britain's loss of its empire in the 50s, together with its finding room in the European economic community only on very hard terms, has created the conditions in which it has been driven in on itself and attempted to reassert its identity far more aggressively than ever before in strongly nationalistic terms so in other words christians in britain at the end of the 20th century arguably face uh, so this is still a quote sorry uh, a far more blatant and defiant nationalism than the unconscious assumed superiority of the previous 150 years as an aside before i finish this um he's obviously therefore referencing british imperialism during the 1800s um but arguing now that um this is at the end of the 20th century sorry um that we face a far more blatant and defiant nationalism than the unconscious assumed superiority of the previous 150 years. This situation is exacerbated by such emotive issues in a multiracial country's immigration, citizenship and nationality. It can also be seen in the passions roused by regional, e.g. Welsh and Scottish nationalism. Now, David Pryor then notes that George Orwell and F Catherwood distinguish between patriotism and nationalism before writing on the next page that without wanting to disagree with Catherwood's distinction between the two, it is biblically debatable whether even such patriotism can be sustained as a Christian option. Now, as a theological graduate, I, I think I can say that David Pryor doesn't theologically fall down on his assertions around this. However, can nationalism and patriotism ever be morally and ethically okay?
2: That's my question for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, well, your your example of um, the role of imperialism and militarism in British national identity—that's that, interesting, right? So, I, what you—I think what you were suggesting in, in in that quote is that what is when you ask what does it mean to be British or American or what have you—the story almost immediately goes to, we're the guys that won this war, or we're the people who built these monuments to our war dead, right? When you look at our cities, and especially our capital cities, how they're oriented around war monuments and so on, um, I believe you, we started this conversation with a statue to Nelson. <laughs> was that where you started?
0: Uh, well, no, this was when we, we we did have that conversation. No, we, we were talking about... Uh, in Ireland, right? That was that was our previous question about terrorism. This one, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah,
2: yeah. And if I'm if I understand, and I don't know a lot about your history, but Nelson was an admiral. If I'm right, is this yep. the person, yep. right? Lord so, Admiral Nelson. Yeah, this is a war monument, right? In other yeah. words, um, so our, our cultural identity is caught up in this in this militaristic, nationalistic, imperialistic um, myth, I would call it. <laughs> By the way, myths work. <laughs> they're important. They're powerful. They're not easily dismissed. I mean, so much of our lives have this kind of mythic component, right? I would even argue if you pushed me that marriage is a myth, even though I love my wife, <laughs> right? So um, the same is true. I, I can't help it. I'm an American and I participate in a mythic construct that is the United States. I identify with it. I've I've learned it. I've imbibed it my whole life. I celebrate the 4th of July, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I think your question was, can it, can it ultimately be justified this mythic construct, or is there a critical vantage point on this? And I, and I would argue that yes, ultimately when you start doing the philosophical work to ask, what is a nation? Um, what, what is a citizen? We, we, we end up with a lot of confusion. <laughs> um, some people are in, some people are out. And typically, if you, if you think about this, the, the ones who are the most in, right? The, the best citizens, is that even a, but the best citizens are those who serve the nation in military uh, capacity, right? We, I mean, national holidays, You generally march out the war heroes and celebrate them. Of course it works that way. It always has. Pericles did that in ancient Athens, you know. Um, This is the way the nation state works. Um, You mentioned this. uh, I like that title you said, Jesus or Britannia, from the author you quoted. That's, That's very interesting. Again, I would argue that in the Christian tradition, to pick one, this, this, is a, this is a worrying kind of idolatry, that to, to, sit, to claim that, that the nation state is the thing I should sacrifice my life for is really unchristian, right? I mean, this is not what Christ does. <laughs> He's not sacrificing on behalf of the nation. He's be sacrificing on behalf of humanity, right? Other traditions, I think, will also offer something similar, right? So, um, if you go again with Buddhism, I mean, ultimately for the Buddhists, all of this stuff, the nation state, this is all ephemeral, right? It's, there's, a, there's a non-self there to the, to the nation state. It doesn't really exist. And we get so caught up in our, our attachment to this myth, mythic entity that it produces all kinds of suffering and confusion. The ancient Greeks also knew this, some of them. Um, My favorite uh, uh, along this line are the cynics of ancient Greece, Diogenes, Antisthenes, and these folks. And you may know that Diogenes the Cynic was the person who coined the, the term cosmopolitan. Famous story, you know, Alexander the Great shows up, you know, the conquering hero, Alexander the Great shows up to this philosopher Diogenes who lives in a barrel. And he says, what can I do for you? And diogenes says get out of the sun i'm trying to take a sun sun bath here right he has no respect for political authority and then when someone asks diogenes well what city do you come from what polis do you come from he says cosmopolis i'm a a citizen of the world and the idea there is that our common humanity crosses borders um and our allegiance to particular cities leads to war ultimately and the greeks knew that for sure
1: You're listening to episode two of the Docio Podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast.
0: Hugo Dracon, writer of Nietzsche's Great Politics, says, There is no reason to believe that political agency must solely be located in the modern state and Nietzsche does not hold such a view. He instead locates his political project in the transition away from the nation state. Indeed, the decay of the state signals the superseding of the modern question of political philosophy as framed by Lita, the theory of the state and its legitimacy. The new question for Nietzsche will revolve around determining which institutions can fulfil the platonic mission of introducing the new Plato's that the culture state failed to achieve so could you explain how the platonic culture state differs from the modern nation state and also whether nietzsche was right should we aim to move away from nation states perhaps to a more local city regional state-based community organization and government or more widely towards a whole world or global government what should our political and national worlds look like ideally (laughs) i guess (laughs) Okay. Wow. Well, <laughs> only the
2: entire question of political philosophy here on the table. So um, let, let me preface this by, by saying that the philosophical inquiry into politics is always at odds with reality. <laughs> we live in a world structured by nation states and transnational corporations. Um, You know, whatever we say here as philosophers is 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 a blip. History is going to unfold as history unfolds, right? We don't have any control over that. Plato knew that, by the way, to go back to Plato. So Plato's vision, the Greek vision in general, was of an organic whole where everyone is connected by ethnicity and even ultimately family relationship, because Plato in his republic, he wants to break down even marriage, so that there's plural marriage, so you don't know who your parents are, right? Uh, men and women have sex according to the ruler, and then everyone's a child of everyone. It's this sort of ideal of uh, organic state ruled by the wise philosopher king, right? Now that's crazy, that's never, <laughs> that's never gonna happen. I think actually my interpretation of Plato, I think he knew it was crazy, and I think he almost thinks it's a joke. Um, but at the, behind the joke, there's a truth the the truth is there is no perfect state we'll never achieve a platonic organic state ruled by a philosopher king why not because there are foreigners who cross into our borders and live in our cities in the ancient world there were slaves they all had slaves who were often foreigners victims of war um and history unfolds there's just no there's no perfect state now fast forward this then. If you want to skip forward about two thousand years to the Peace of Westphalia and our modern notion of nation-states, it, it had it behind it still an organic metaphor, right? Nation often meant ethnicity, and so through this period, as as states begin to form as national states, they're breaking away from what empire? The Holy Roman Empire was in place before the rise of modern nation states, and the Holy Roman Empire was a combination of nationalities, ethnicities, under some overarching whole. Again, very brief history of this, very very superficial, we're bouncing along. So here we are, 2021, and we think that there have always been these nations, the United States, um, do you call it Great Britain still? Is it Great Britain?
0: Yeah. Um, Great Britain, United Kingdom it depends who you ask, obviously I live in Scotland, we have um, Scottish nationalism up here so you know, if you ask some people in Scotland they will say, no I live in Scotland Uh, you know, it depends who you ask and where you ask and how you ask but yes yes, this tells you something though
2: this tells you right, that that, the the mythic entity whatever you want to call it, Great Britain, United Kingdom it's a construct right and it's it's a historical accident here we are so your your passage from nietzsche then was kind of a, i think you're asking well, what what could come next what are the alternatives right so um and i've written about this in a couple other places and it's this is this is fuzzy and weird but i would call it an anarchist cosmopolitan future now it's ideal and it's 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 counter cultural you know it's, it's crazy but there's and I've, i actually though i think there's some basis in this we are seeing this with the internet and the way that corporations and technology and science work there is a global spread and diffusion of power science works that you look at you and me we're talking across an ocean here doing a little philosophy and our na- our national identities are kind of irrelevant to this right so there's a cosmopolitan connectedness that's facilitated by capital, by global capitalism, by technology, by science, by art, by literature. At the same time, there's decentralization. So your Scottish independence referendum is part of that decentralization. The Brexit is part of that decentralization. And these two things, I have no idea. 200 years from now, I, I imagine, though, that things are going to look quite, quite different because simultaneously global spread and decentralization and localization, but even the word local starts to mean something weird in the Internet age, right? Where you and I are local right now. We're together. Yeah. Um, all that being said, this thing we live in right now, this, this current system of nation states, it's not going to last forever. And we know it won't because it's new. It was invented in, I don't know, about five, 600 years ago okay. in Europe. It was invented in particular in in Europe. Mm. There were some major wars fought in the name of this idea mm-hmm. that then created the global system we're in now. And the system is going to end up looking different at some point because we know that change is common. <laughs> right? Heraclitus says everything's on fire. There will always will be change. So, um I don't know if that answered
0: the question. No, it does, it does. And again, um, I think one of the things here is, it's about having the conversation, not necessarily having the answer, isn't it?
1: You're listening to episode two of the Docio Podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter, at Docio Podcast.
0: I've got kind of two major sections still to cover and I have a few questions for each. So the next one is pacifism, which I mean we've touched on, of course. But could you just take us kind of through the various types of pacifism and pacifist, and just kind of outline their thinking and also their philosophical and logical shortfalls, and also perhaps their benefits?
2: (laughs) Yeah, a huge question. So I, you know, I I wrote this encyclopedia article for the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, where I did a a category analysis of Varieties of pacifism. There's several ways you can slice it up. Um, one has to do with the difference between your moral theory, so you could be a consequentialist or a deontologist. Another has to do with the extent. You know, how far does your peace or nonviolence extend? Does it include animals? Is it only about war? Pa- some versions of pacifism are only anti-war. We've already seen how complicated that is because war is, you know, what is anyway. Um, so there's a difference between sort of um, unconditional, absolute pacifism and a much more narrow view. <clears throat> the history of the term is fascinating. So the, the term was introduced only 150 years ago by um, some scholars who needed, <laughs> needed a concept to bring together ideas that already existed. So there's a deep history here that, again, goes all the way back in the West. I think at least to Jesus, and that developed especially through uh, Reformed theologians um, and especially like Anabaptist traditions, Mennonites, Quakers, and so on, the Amish. Um, and they're not the only ones. So people have been talking about these ideas for thousands of years. This only got identified as pacifism about 150 years ago. And the British um, imperial power had something to do with this. So then people like Bertrand Russell, during the First World War, Bertrand Russell opted out. He was opposed to um, the uh, the British engaging in the First World War, and he was jailed for this, a philosopher famously jailed for his opposition to war. And he allied himself with the pacifists, and he started using the word pacifism. In the United States, something similar was happening. People started using this terminology. but the terminology is very broad and very vague. My, some of my research, like, I don't know what effect it'll have, but I've been trying to encourage people to be more careful with the word. If it's, it's not enough to say you're a pacifist. You also need to say what kind of pacifist you are, right? Are you a consequentialist, a deontologist? Are you contingent, absolute? Um, And then there's the word nonviolence, right? So, some people don't like the word pacifism because it sounds like religion, especially because the history included a bunch of religious folks. Uh, nonviolence, that term comes to us from Gandhi and people who were then interpreting and um, popularizing Gandhi's views. And some of my colleagues, who I would, I'll swear to God, they're pacifists. You know, I know these guys, you're pacifist. They're like, no, 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 not a pacifist. I'm a nonviolentist following in. The gandhi mold um and actually I, just, I have a new uh paper that's going to come out this year at some point asking the question was gandhi a pacifist and the fact that we can ask that question actually shows you how complicated it is right okay on one interpretation he is on another interpretation not quite so um it's, a, it's complicated to say the least like everything else in philosophy
1: You're listening to episode two of the Docio Podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast.
0: You wrote this, I'm quoting you now, um, though I haven't, I've been a very poor student and haven't written where I've taken the quote from but you'll probably be able to tell me. But if pacifists refuse to compromise with the dehumanizing violence of state power, they should, to be consistent, also refuse the benefits of state power. A consistent pacifism must also be a set of anarchism that is content with the sort of sorts of goods that can be attained from a very primitive and minimal form of social organization. So is this to say that pacifists should in a sense become like a hyper ultra vegan whereby they analyze the origin of everything and determine its pacifistic history so perhaps modern medicine is out because of its origin and also its abuse during the second world war in Nazi Germany and perhaps should be organized more like the Amish communities in North America as isolationist self-imposed social outcasts.
2: Yeah, no, that's, uh, that you, that's from that book Against Religions, Wars, and States that I published about six, seven years ago. Um, uh, here's, the, here's the issue. The, <laughs> to be consistent, right? To be consistent, we might have to live like the Amish. None of us are consistent, or very few of us are. I'm not. Um, and part of the problem is, again, it's, there's, there's levels of analysis. Individuals live in broken world, right? We, we've inherited a world that we didn't create, and we live in institutions that we don't control. Um, you make do the best you can. Some people live, live it. Some people are consistent, very few. <laughs> maybe Gandhi, maybe the, the Amish. Um, but it turns out everyone compromises somewhere along the line, right? It's just it's human nature. Christians would call this sin. Um, it's a problem. Right. No, but but behind this, what's the what's the deal? What's the issue? So, uh, if you think this through, I'm a I'm a professor at a public university, right? My job, my my income is based on tax dollars that are paid to the state of California and the United States. Those tax dollars are collected through police power, right? People pay their taxes because of coercion. Um, underlying my very life and the institution I teach at is all of this political power. Now, if I were consistent, I suppose I'd live like Diogenes the Cynic. I'd move into a a tub and live live out in a field somewhere, right? It's difficult. I'm I'm not going to do that. Um, Maybe I'm a hypocrite. Um, Or, you know, the way I I talk about this with my, my own children, you know, you pick your battles and do the best you can. And you have to think, where do your skills and talents allow you to make a difference? You've said it a couple of times about vegetarianism and veganism. I am a vegetarian. I don't eat meat products. I'm not quite vegan. I'll eat an egg on occasion and I'll eat some cheese. Um, I do my best in that regard. I feel like in terms of minimizing violence in the world, that's something I can do very easily. It's easy for me to not eat dead animals. And if by doing that, I can contribute to peace on the planet, then I'm, I'm happy to make that um, decision. Am I going to give up my salary at a state college that's paid for by <laughs> by the military industrial complex? No. You know, so we have to pick our battles and do our best. And here's the problem, by the way, with all of this theorizing that. So just if you're going to go there in a minute one could ask what good does philosophy do and what good does it do for us to talk about all these concepts if we're not going to live what we say well there's a difference between ideal theory and the real world and and most of the theorists know that the ideal theory is merely an ideal i mentioned plato earlier <clears throat> i think plato was joking around when he said philosopher kings should rule because it's not going to happen in the real world what do we do in the meantime well we try to build conditions we try to educate people we try to point in the right direction knowing full well that we're not going to get there
1: you're listening to episode two of the docio podcast with edmund conroy and professor andrew fiala find us on twitter at docio podcast
0: one of the most persistent ideas and concepts is the just war theory um And there's a lot of questions to be asked here. And I could ask you to just kind of explain what the root of just war theory entails. But I think I won't, because I think most people kind of have a rough working knowledge of it. So the first question is actually um, an interjection. It's one of the listener questions, which is Hannah from Sterling, who says, is there ever a just war?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I wrote a book about this called The Just War Myth, where I explain the theory and where it comes from. And I argue that, that it's a good theory. I like the theory. I like the just war theory, but I suspect that no war lives up to the standards of the theory. And so the version of pacifism that I derive from that, I call just war pacifism. It, it, it looks at the theory and it, and, it, and it values what the theory says, but in reality, almost every war fails, including the famous supposedly just wars and so this if you don't mind just one couple of sentences further you know the second world war of the american uh, british forces against nazi germany is typically viewed as a just war there is there are elements of just war that, that it was a just war but the terror bombing campaigns against the germans violated basic just war principles the same is true in the american bombing of japan and the use of atomic bombs um, we could get into lots of details, but just word theory is complicated. There's a lot of parts. Okay. So you could have a just cause, but use unjust means in pursuit of that cause. And that's, that's the problem.
1: You're listening to Episode 2 of the Docio Podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast.
0: Um, so, I was going to go into a big bit um, and quote a guy called Ronald H. Baton, who in the 1960s is Christian church historian, wrote Christian Attitudes Towards War and Peace, a Historical Survey and Critical Reevaluation. I'm not going to do that because that's quite a long quote. Um, but he does quote a guy called R.H. R- R- Tawney, who was a socialist and economic historian, who said, War is either a crime or a crusade. Um, don't want to jump jump too much into that um basically the argument that he was making to christians at that time was um first of all that no such thing as a crusade war that's not a good thing anyway um because it's arbitrary um you know um fictitious trappings of impartial judgment um And the Christian in war, this is a quote, the Christian in war cannot win without the aid of obnoxious allies, and he becomes therefore in a measure guilty of their crimes. And there was issues with the just war theory, that war should be just on one side only. Uh, The impartial court of judicature, which which does not and never has existed to determine which side is just only. Uh, And some might argue the Hague, um, but again, that's politically influenced um philosophically um you've already answered the thing about just war um if war cannot be entirely a just war is it an unholy crusade is it a crime philosophically
2: is it a crime um (laughs) well uh crime is one another one of these fuzzy concepts right so Good, the good news is, a good a good news takeaway, is that um, the just war tradition has been developed into international law and treaties, so there are international rules governing warfare th- that exists, and that is connected to the just war tradition. The difficulty is who will enforce those rules, right? So this is the problem of the World Court and so on. I'm, I mean, Ultimately, it turns out that it's, it's heavily politicized and some nations don't play along, AKA the United States, um, who often doesn't wanna participate in some of this. And then if you think about the United Nations and the way that the security council is rigged by the dominant powers on earth, the nuclear power, the enforcement mechanism of this is very difficult. But the good news is that there is some kind of global consensus about what counts as a war crime. Um, this developed after the Second World War, out of war crimes tribunals in Europe and in Asia, and there is a kind of global agreement. For example, that rape is a crime of war, that genocide is wrong. It seems bizarre that you even have to say that, but that genocide is wrong. Um, abuse of prisoners in warfare. I mean, so there are there there are there is consensus about war crimes now in in you know scare quotes war crimes the question is who's gonna arrest someone and prosecute them and that becomes very difficult and that's a that's a problem, a international problem.
1: you're listening to episode two of the docio podcast with edmund conroy and professor andrew Fiala. find us on twitter at docio podcast
0: um you brought up genocide and i haven't asked anything about it um do you think it... Uh, I would use the word ironic, that's perhaps wrong, but I think that the right word might be hypocritical, of uh, super-Western powers, uh, UK, America, um, the Netherlands, France, Germany, Spain, talking about the genocide being a war crime um, in modern wars without necessarily... Properly discussing what happened in colonial times, especially the UK's events.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a, that's a huge question connected to issues about reparations and um, yeah, it, th- this goes quite deep historically. Um, is it ironic or hypocritical? <clears throat> well, again, good news takeaway at least people recognize that there is such a thing as genocide. And there, this is based on a common set of ideas about human rights and human dignity and so on. The, I mean, we don't want to lose that, right? We, you'd, you'd, you'd hesitate to overly politicize this and make people throw up their hands and say, "Ah, oh, genocide. I don't want to talk about it. No, no, no. We need that concept. And it needs to be grounded in claims about the dignity of, of human beings. Um, should it then be applied retrospectively to what happened 500 years ago? Well, we can do that. I'm not sure exactly what the political ramification would be. I mean, we're not going to return lands to their native peoples. That's <laughs> just not going to happen, you know, the reality of the world. But, um, uh in my, in my case, right, so I mentioned this earlier, that the United States, I would claim, it's pretty obvious, is grounded, founded with genocide in the background, right? Native tribes were destroyed. That seems to me not even controversial. And I think we, we all need to be willing to say that. What do we do about it? That's a whole different story, but I think we ought to be able to say that. And you're probably right about the worry about hypocrisy, that there are some people that don't want to go there at all. And that's not useful. I mean, let's admit are our, our the faults of, of the past. We're not, as, as human beings alive in 2021, we're not really responsible for the genocides that were committed 500 years ago, obviously.
0: Okay, yeah. So
2: why not talk about it, you know? Okay.
1: You're listening to episode two of the Docio Podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast.
0: So one final question, which is about just war. Um, And I'm going to try and bundle several things in and hope you can answer in less than three minutes. Uh, Just war theory, um, Bainton, uh, that's Ronald H. Bainton, calls the edge of justice rather than exclusive justice or just war theory. He asks, can modern warfare vindicate the edge of justice? Um, He he kind of comes to the conclusion it cannot. Now, so... um, The other thing often said about just war, um, and we've touched on this a little bit, is that it's about the defense of the weaker of those in need of protection. But is it not true that more often than not, those in need of protection are often endangered just as much, if not more, by the protector? And this also just destroys this just war argument that we have here.
2: Yeah, this goes back to where we started with the innocent children who die, right? Um, and one, one worry that I have, and I'm not the only one, about just war theory is it's applied unilaterally. So it's it's the question about us and our children and not the question about them and their children, right? I think um, that's that's a fundamental problem with the way the theory gets mythologized, the way it gets employed by nation states. We, we ought to adopt a much more cosmopolitan view of this, which takes into account the suffering of everyone involved, including the soldiers, including the innocent people. Let me, I know we're heading towards the conclusion. So let me just offer this kind of concluding thought. Um, if a war were to be justifiable, I think we'd have to be able to say that the people who, the, the, the places where the bombs are being dropped those people would have to be saying, please drop these bombs here. <laughs> and I could imagine a circumstance where that could happen, right? So again, if I'm living in Nazi Germany and and the Gestapo is on the corner of my city and, and every, you know, and there's massive oppression and the Jews are being rounded up, I could imagine a German, ordinary German saying, you know what, please bomb us and get these uh, goose steppers out of the way, you know, Um but that's going to be a very rare circumstance. And I think that's, that's one of the, it's more complicated than this, but that's one of the perspective-taking tools, right? We, it, it can't, just war can't be applied unilaterally. It has to be applied with an imagination that takes in the, those on the other side who could be killed. And again, if their human rights are being violated, they may be willing to take that risk, but we ought to at least ask them, Yeah. <laughs> or imagine ourselves into their circumstances.
1: You're listening to episode two of the Docio Podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast.
0: Benny from Sterling says, with Nobel Peace Prizes having gone to people such as Aung San Suu Kyi, and Barack Obama both whose involvement in war has recently been highlighted is the Nobel Peace Prize something we should now consider worthless or just a terrible measurement of its winners
2: yeah I, th- I think that's uh, um, th- the Nobel Peace Prize is a, a, a hint a sign you know it's it doesn't mean anything just like the the Presidential Medal of Freedom that, that Donald Trump gave out to some people that you know I mean these are political, um, these are political events, political actions. And they can teach us something, they bring, they bring notoriety. And then the beautiful thing is, we're free to criticize. So um, when Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize, I wrote a op ed, like, isn't this surprising? You know, I mean, Um, you know, given uh, drone bombing campaigns. And so I mean, yeah, I I think these things are just provocations doesn't It doesn't necessarily mean anything.
1: You're listening to Episode 2 of the Docio Podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast.
0: Jane from Newcastle asks... Everybody says they want world peace from politicians to beauty pageant queens. Is this just lip service we all pay to an ideal we don't believe can ever be achieved? <laughs> That's a good, I, you know, I hit on this a minute ago
2: about the problem of ideal theory and, and um, inconsistency. Uh, yeah, a lot of people talk about it and, and that, that term lip service, right? It's, it's just a, a thing that trips off your tongue. It doesn't mean anything. That's where philosophy comes in, right? As as well, what do we really mean, and how deep does it go? And then, especially from ancient philosophy, what are we willing to do in our lives to participate, to actualize, and so on? I think, um, again, the critical moment, again, even with the Nobel Peace Prize in the background, right? Well, let's start asking questions then. So when the beauty queen says, "I want world peace," well. They should ask her, what do you mean by that? Now, what are we going to do to make it happen? Um, we, need, we, need, we need critical thought in all of this.
1: You're listening to episode two of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast.
0: Uh, this is a questionnaire that I ask everyone. At the end, it's based on James Lipton's Inside the Actors Studio questionnaire, which, of course, is based on Bernard Pavot's Apostrophes, I think was the name of the TV show, in France, which is based on a guy called Marcel something in the 1800s. So it's a group of 10 questions. I've slightly edited them because I think James Lipton's were a little bit rude and he was asking actors. Um... But these are the questions that I have. What's your least favorite word? Cruelty. What makes you happiest? Nature. Okay. And what sound or noise do you hate? Military airplanes. (laughs) They fly over my house. (laughs) And what profession would you not like to do?
2: Well, I guess uh, farming. I'll put it that way.
0: This is the the final one. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? (laughs) That my friends and family will be joining me at some point. okay well um i'm afraid we have completely run out of time um for yourself and for me it has been absolutely fascinating and i hope that you've enjoyed the conversation Yeah, um and i'd like to thank you very much for your time professor
2: Th- thank you Ed, and, and your your questions are like you know just very informed and you're on on point with all this stuff so i appreciate your intelligent conversation
0: i enjoyed it thank you very much thank you have a great rest of your day thank you bye bye
1: You're listening to episode two of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio podcast. This was episode two of the Docio podcast hosted by Edmund Conroy interviewing Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio podcast or on our website at docio.edconroy.co.uk. And please don't forget to subscribe using your favourite podcast listening platform.
0: Thank you very much for joining me. I've been Ed Conroy and this is The Dokio Podcast and that's all we have time for today. Join me next time when I will be talking with Professor Friedrich Neumeyer on the meaning of linguistics. That's all for now though. Have a great rest of your week.
1: was provided by freepd.com under a Creative Commons Licence 0. Additional voiceover work by Hannah Conroy. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021 The Docio Podcast. to support the docio podcast then please visit our website shop to purchase merchandise or visit patreon.com forward slash docio to financially subscribe to the podcast your contribution alone could help the podcast make many more episodes